This is Bug in Your Ear, Dispatches from the Surgical Infection Society. I'm Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon and surgical infection enthusiast. In each episode of this podcast, we meet members of this great society and hear about the groundbreaking work they're doing to improve care of our patients. Today, we're talking to Dr. Dante Ye. In our last episode, we talked to Dr. Dante Ye, professor of surgery and a trauma and acute care surgeon at Ryder Trauma Center and Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. In that episode, we talked to him in his role as the editor of the Surgical Infection Society's special issue of Surgical Infections on Statistics and Study Design. Today, we're having another conversation about his own study, one of three trials in the SIS Multicenter Study Initiative. As you'll hear, Dante is trying to answer one of the most common and important questions in surgical infections today. What's the right way to use antibiotics after an appendectomy? And he's looking for collaborators. Dante, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again here. You're our, uh, you're a regular guest here on uh, Bugging Your Ear. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. We had a wonderful conversation about your special issue of surgical infections around statistics and how they can be used for good and for evil. And now we're talking about something completely different, which is this uh, amazing multi-center trial that you are putting out from the University of Miami, but looking for collaborators across the country. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's not as unrelated as you think, because based on all the knowledge that I gained, you know, helping edit that uh, special issue, I tried to, to put the state of the art and the highest quality techniques into the design of the study. I really want to talk at length about the, the design of the study, because I think just reading the, the abstract and the, the information that you presented at the meeting about uh, the study, like clearly there's some cool, cool stuff going on here. But let's start with what's the question you're trying to answer and what's the foundation you're building on for this study of uh, antibiotics in appendicitis, one of the great topics in surgery? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I want to be very clear that what we're talking about antibiotics after appendectomy. So we're not even going near the question of antibiotics or surgery. It's the question of antibiotics after the appendix is already in the bucket. And the history of this, this current study arose from a previous multi-center observational study that, that I uh, led a few years ago. Basically, we did an, a prospective observational of current contemporary American practice related to appendicitis. And that was in response to the Scandinavian APAC trial that had come out a few years prior to that. So what we did was we simply observed uh, over 3,000 patients with appendicitis uh, treated at about 27, 28 centers uh, dispersed around the United States. What was really interesting was that uh, after the appendectomy, we, we noticed a, a wide variation in practice when it came to postoperative antibiotics. And so, you know, if you think of the three flavors of, of appendicitis, we have simple, right, acute non-perforated appendicitis, number one. Number two, we have gangrenous. And number three, we have perforated appendicitis. And the outcomes afterwards, um, the gangrenous is sort of midway in between the outcomes of simple acute appendicitis and perforated. But in both cases of simple versus complicated, and, and I'm lumping gangrenous and perforated together in one category of, of complicated, we, we noticed that there were a lot of patients who were receiving post-operative antibiotics after appendectomy, 
for, for simple appendicitis. And then we also, for complicated, we notice a wide range of duration of antibiotics ranging from none in, in some patients all the way out to, you know, you can imagine 7, 14, 28, whatever. So is football scores, right? That's crazy. Exactly. Not unsurprisingly, the most common is four, was four postoperative days. And I, and I really attribute that to the um, influence of the stop it trial for, you know, complicated intra-abdominal infection. So this is kind of a long-winded buildup to basically we're saying we, we need to standardize this. We need to answer the question of how long after uh, an appendectomy should we continue antibiotics. So I looked in the literature. I didn't really find any solid evidence to guide us. And, and given how common uh, appendicitis and appendectomies are, not only in the United States and in the world, I, I, I thought that Doing a lowly trial like this may actually have a large impact if we can, you know, um, if it can be used to to help with some antibiotic stewardship. I think it's it's incredibly valuable, you know, just thinking about my own perspectives on this and how they've changed. My own practice has adopted, you know, not doing antibiotics for non-perforated appendicitis after surgery, but I will still do 14 days of antibiotics after a perforated appendicitis, if a drain goes in, but if there's no drain and they're doing well and they're eating, then like we check a white count and maybe we run them out to seven days or maybe we stop. And I mean, it remains very confusing. Let's talk a little bit about how you're, you're structuring this in a way that, that's going to give us an answer, you know, a prospective randomized trial that's going to hopefully give us an answer on what the right thing to do is. Because even saying like what the right thing is, is not totally straightforward, right? Yeah, so the traditional way that we're all used to studying a disease like this is to divide the outcomes into a binary outcome, right? Infection or not, mortality or not. And then we do the null hypothesis significance testing, which in a, in a, in a disease like appendicitis where the mortality rate is so low, right? The, the vast majority of patients do well, okay? So, so if we chose a traditional study design, we would be looking to enroll patients in the numbering like tens to hundreds of thousands just to de even be able to detect a difference. And that's just simply not feasible. And so, uh, you know, in the course of my reading, I came across this, this interesting study design that was first proposed in, uh, I think it was 2016 by an author named Scott Evans. The abbreviation is DOOR, D-O-O-R, and it stands for Desirability of Outcome Ranking, right? And basically, Scott Evans proposed that you assign the patients to a hierarchy of potential outcomes. And if you can imagine, you know, cure with no complications as being the most desirable outcome, okay, the highest, the number one on the, on the ordinal scale, and the worst being death, okay? And then you have all these gradations in between that are kind of nuanced um, degrees of recovery. And so you can imagine... If one step below cure is, well, you had the cure, but you had a complication, but it was like no big deal. It was, and, and, and let's say specifically an infectious complication. It was no big deal, and it was easily treated with just antibiotics. One level below that would be, well, you had a complication, and you had to go to the emergency department to go get it you know, treated and seen. Okay, Below that would probably be hospital admission. One level below that would be some sort of invasive procedure, such as a percutaneous drain. Below that would be maybe an, a reoperation, a return trip to the operating room. And then below that, you know, you can either go death or like prolonged ICU stay, blah, 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 whatever. So 
what you would do is you would assign the patients to any one of these mutually exclusive tiers of outcomes. And, and then, so that's the door section. Now, the second part of the study design is called the radar, and it says response adjusted for duration of uh, antibiotics, I believe. And, and so what it says is, okay, let's say you have two patients, and they both have the same outcome in, in the seven-tiered system. Let's say we both have a cure, okay? So you and I both had appendicitis, we had an appendectomy, we both had simple non-acute, non, non-perforated, and we both had a cure. The philosophies uh, underlying the radar is that if we both had the same outcome, then whoever got exposed to the less antibiotics or fewer, whoever had fewer days of exposure to antibiotics, that's probably a win. That, that's probably more desirable, both from a personal individual standpoint and from a societal standpoint regarding you know, pressure for uh, resistant organisms. So the second part of the door radar is that, okay, well, we're going to assign all of the patients who got randomized to one of these seven categories, and then we're going to kind of battle it out and rank them within each tier according to the duration of exposure to antibiotics. I guess I had never heard of this design before I read it randomly a couple of years ago. But in the past year, if you've been paying attention to the COVID trials coming out in the New England Journal and in JAMA, there are several high-profile studies that were published that used either as their primary outcome or as a secondary outcome, a, an ordinal hierarchical, you know, uh, mutually exclusive scale. So this is really um, come to the forefront in cutting edge study design. And I wanted to, to try it out, you know, with this study. And I was part of the non-operative appendicitis study for kids that was recently in JAMA. And I actually made a video for the CODA trial, which is the non-operative study uh, in adults. And I'm familiar with the literature, you know, around the work there, which which really did sort of focus on those binary outcomes. It's like, did you get surgery or did you not? Did you get an abscess or did you not? But it's so much more nuanced than that, as we all know in our clinical practice. And it's cool that you can sort of in- incorporate that. And then also within each of those tiers, weight antibiotics. And I like that because it, to me, if I understand it correctly, it's like, it's better to have more antibiotics and a better outcome than fewer antibiotics and a worse outcome. And this takes into account that relationship. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I wanted to really emphasize that the way this type of trial is designed is that we would not value a patient who had a worse clinical outcome just because they got exposed to fewer antibiotics. So clinical outcome takes primacy And then it's only after you've sorted them out so that they're at the same clinical outcome level, then you start to uh, rank them according to their antibiotic exposure. So so you would never assign a higher score to somebody who did worse. Tell me about the the interventions that you're planning, right? Because you've got two arms, one for simple non-perforated appendicitis and one for complicated appendicitis, and then randomization within each of those groups, right? Right, exactly. So for the acute non-perforated appendicitis, the restricted arm would be no post-operative antibiotics. That's it. Just, you know, they would get their standard preoperative dosing and, and that's it. So the restricted would be known. The liberal arm for post-operative antibiotics would be up to 24 hours of post-operative antibiotics after an appendectomy. We're trying to make this as pragmatic as possible. So we're not dictating which agent. We're not even dictating which route. It can be IV, it can be PO. 
right? You can send them home from recovery with one pill of, of whatever antibiotic you want and say, hey, take it when you get home, right? For the complicated arm, we did two post hoc analyses from our multi-center observational, looking at first at the um, simple non-perforated and then at the complicated. And so for complicated, we compared in a post hoc fashion those that got up to 24 hours of post-operative antibiotics versus those that got four days of antibiotics. And we were unable to detect a significant difference. Again, this was a post hoc hypothesis generating analysis. And here we are testing the hypothesis in a prospective randomized fashion. If your patient has complicated, i.e. either gangrenous or perforated, the restrictive arm will be up to 24 hours of post-operative antibiotics. And then the liberal arm would be four hours. So this is sort of taking the stop it trial and sort of pushing it even further into the restrictive realm um, so that the what was considered restrictive in the stop it arm is now in the stop it trial is now considered liberal in this arm. So you would you operate on a patient, you go in, they find you find they have grossly perforated appendicitis, you sort of, you know, do source control to the best of your ability, right? Suck out all the pus and um, take out the appendix, and then they're randomized to 24 hours or less. So you could say like no antibiotics, or you could say up to 24 within that that group. And then the other group is like up to four days. Yeah, up to four days. But most most commonly, people chose four days. In the wild, most people choose four days. Let's pause and talk a little bit about the Stop It trial too, because I think that was a real seminal piece of work that came out of the Surgical Infection Society. And I remember talking with Dr. Sawyer, who was the PI on that at a meeting at one point. I'd ask, you know, why did you choose four days? And he was like, well, that's the lowest number we could get the sites to agree to. Like, people just weren't ready to go below four days. This is now like the natural extension of that. This is the like, well, let's go below four days and see what happens study. Right. And I, I think that, you know, in the Stop It trial, they uh, enrolled all types of complicated intra-abdominal infections, right? And they capped out at the number of perfed appies that they could enroll because I'm sure they didn't want their entire study to be overrun with perforated appendicitis. Personally, I, I think the stakes are probably lower with restrictive antibiotic therapy for a perforated appendicitis or a gangrenous than you are when you're talking about like a rip-roaring perforated diverticulitis or peptic ulcer. So I think that the risk tolerance is probably a little bit higher for most surgeons and practitioners when you're talking about perf appy, especially when the outcomes are almost universally going to be good anyway. Yeah, like we've got a million ways to salvage mm -hmm. an intra-abdominal abscess after appendicitis in an otherwise like not super sick person, right? Right. And the demographics that they tends to affect are usually more resilient and, and able to and have more reserve. Let's talk a little bit about how you've designed the power on this, because I thought that was really interesting as well, this event-driven power analysis that, that allows you to sort of do some seemingly more sort of prospective monitoring and kind of grow the study as needed uh, rather than setting a bunch of numbers up front. I'm going to do the best I can to describe it. I, I will say that I did hire a, a hired gun. We, you know, we, we contracted with our, our biostatisticians. Which, which I think in nowadays, in, in the 21st century, if you're going to do high quality science, you, you need to have a statistician from the outset, especially for something of this complexity. But I basically told him, I, I said, listen, I'm going to be recruiting centers. I have no idea how many people will uh, sign up. And I, I, I want to avoid the cardinal sin of reporting a underpowered study. Okay, I, I don't want to go through three years of effort, 
close down the study, finish it out, and then look at the data and see like, oh man, if we, if we only enrolled another 200, we, we could have achieved power to detect. And now we're stuck here with, with an underpowered negative trial, right? So, so that was what I sort of said to him. So our statistician did some modeling and he basically came up with a bunch of different scenarios. He said, okay, based on the event rates from your previous observational study, we're guessing that, you know, there's going to be about, let's say, like a 30% infectious complication rate, uh, you know, for the complicated. So let's say if you get 10 centers enrolling, this is how many we are expecting, how, what the event rate will be for each center, you know, and that you need to enroll this many patients. And then let's say if you have 40 centers, then it will be different. So the more centers that sign up and enroll, the fewer per center need to be enrolled will also be doing sensitivity analyses to take into account the center effect. Because if you're ever doing a multi-center trial, you have to consider that there's something unique to that particular center, right? Yeah, particularly if you're like, you are being really pragmatic about it, right? Because different centers are doing different antibiotics and like behaving in significantly different ways and you're not prescribing every aspect of the care. Right, right, exactly. So what we have pre-planned is that basically every year, prior to the Surgical Infection Society meeting, we'll do an interim analysis and sort of see where we're at. So this, so this is um, would be properly called an adaptive trial, right? Because we can adapt our final sample size according to what the event rates are. So I've seen this happen where studies will get 50% into an enrollment and they'll, t- they'll do an interim analysis and they'll be like, oh man, our... Uh, our event rate is much lower than what we initially thought uh, because, you know, we're, everybody's just doing so great. The Hawthorne effect, everyone's getting great care now because they're enrolled in the study, right? So, so now the, the bad outcomes are fewer and that means we're going to be underpowered. So we need to increase our sample size. So, so that, that's sort of what we're doing. And, and obviously we're going to be guarding against multiplicity, right? We don't want to terminate the study uh, early. Um, uh, because of a random high or a random low. So um, we, we, we will be um, adjusting for the fact that we're doing multiple interim looks. But um, what's, we're, we're going we're gonna to have predefined stopping rules for safety. Obviously, we, we don't want to continue randomizing patients if, an, if a signal emerges early that, that restrictive antibiotics are harming the patients. And so uh, we, we're just going to keep on enrolling until we meet our event rate so that we can say with with high degree of confidence, you know, that we've met our our endpoint. This is so cool. I mean, it's just it feels cutting edge in the way that you're thinking about doing something that initially I think when anybody says to me like, "Oh, we're doing a study on appendicitis," I'm like, "Well, it's unlikely to be anything different than like the million studies done before." But like, this is like a new way of thinking about it and a new way of modeling it, and it, it just seems so exciting. What are the the partners you're looking for? Like, what are you looking for in a collaborating center? Because you are still re- recruiting people to come join you. Oh, yeah. This podcast is an infomercial, let's be honest, right? We are looking for a broad, uh, diverse range of centers throughout the United States, right? We want all uh, regions represented. And we also want to uh, involve both academic and community-based centers and also military Right. I, I think that that's probably underrepresented in most of our um, surgical diseases literature, but but a fair amount of you know military centers are treating you know uh, populations with this disease. So so we're open to anyone. And I would say that realistically speaking, 
the amount of time that it takes from submitting the IRB locally and then negotiating the data use agreement to share data, uh, especially for an RCT, I'm guessing that it's going to be at least six to eight months before we can even enroll our first patient. I already have uh, approval here at the University of Miami, so we'll be getting started a little bit sooner than the rest of the centers, and, and we'll be sort of like the pilot phase so we can work out some of the kinks. But I would say that we would still be welcoming uh, centers who want to sign up probably at least to the end of 2022. I think this is a great study for junior investigators who are looking to get their feet wet because most of the heavy lifting at least has been done for you, right? I've written the protocol. I've, I've gotten my IRB. Most IRBs will be, oh, oh, somebody else already approved it. Okay. That's sort of like a central IRB. We'll just, you know, go along. The main um, things that you would have to do at the local site level is that Okay, you have to get informed consent, right? Because this is an RCT comparing two intervention arms. So at least in my opinion, the best time to get the, uh, the informed consent for the study is right then when you're getting informed consent for the appendectomy, right? So, so you're, hey, we're going to take you to surgery, take care of appendix. Oh, by the way, we're studying this thing and, and uh, you know, to see how, how long afterwards for the antibiotics, would you mind? And then you, boom. Okay, then after that, once once you open up the envelope and you know which which arm the, the subject is is randomized to, and you're providing the envelopes, right? No one's having to run randomization calculations on their own. No, no, no. So so I actually already have the entire randomization scheme for like thousands of patients. So my statistician performed it. It's in. Um, permuted blocks ranging uh, variable size from four to six. And it's also stratified by center and by age over or under 65. So when you're all set to go, when you're ready to enroll your first subject, I'm going to send you a FedEx package, which is going to have two stacks of sealed, opaque, sequentially numbered envelopes. One is going to be a stack for under 65 and the other one's going to be over. And you basically put them in, you know, wherever office that, you know, out of sight. And then when you go and enroll and you get the informed consent, you just go, you pick up the next envelope in the stack, open it up, and it's either going to say restricted or liberal, and then you go from there. So the only other thing in real time that you have to do is at 30 days, call the patient and find out how they did, right? You call them, hey, cure no complications or cure with infectious complication requiring antibiotics only or, you know, whatever, whatever. Everything else can be sort of uh, filled in retroactively later on, you know, you don't have to do it in real time because it's all just stuff gleaned from the chart, right? What antibiotic did they receive? How many days? That's all stuff that you can do whenever you have time. The data collection will be remotely through REDCap. And so every center will be granted restricted access to the central database. So you'll be able to log in from any web browser and then just enter in the data. And then on the back end, I will verify it and lock it for you. Yeah. So it's, it really, it's like, comes as like a prepackaged deal. It's like you're starting a franchise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, it's, it's great for centers that don't have a lot of research experience that want to, you know, dip their toe into it and get into it. Uh, it's good for, for early career investigators who want to join, you know, get on this, this gravy train and, uh, and, and see how it's done and, and make a few, you know, professional connections and stuff. So, so I encourage anybody, please reach out to me by email, and I will provide you all the documents you need to get started. We'll put a link to the clinical trials website in uh, the show notes, and then we, we can also put your email in there as well. But um, do you want to like just broadcast it to the world here? What's the best way to get in touch with you? So my email is dxy154 at med.miami.edu. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us again. Um, I can't wait to get you back for whatever the next big thing is that you're doing out there. And best of luck with this trial. I eagerly anticipate reading the results and then trying desperately to, to integrate them into the pediatric population. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining this conversation with the Surgical Infection Society. This episode of Bug in Your Ear was produced by me, Jonathan Kohler. Production assistance from Heather Evans, Lynn Heido, and Diane Catalano. This episode was mixed and edited by Orlando Magana, who also composed the theme music. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find it. And consider joining the Surgical Infection Society, truly one of the great medical societies out there. We'll be back soon with more stories of the SIS. Thank you.